Welcome to Live in There podcast, your fortnightly show with interviews and insights on meditation, mindfulness, and consciousness. This podcast is brought to you by LiveInThere.com, and I'm your host, Giovanni Dinstman. This is episode number eight, and I'm interviewing Constantin Giorgio, who is an entrepreneur, angel investor, and meditation practitioner. All right, so let's get started. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm well. Um, all the better for uh, having the opportunity to connect with you, hear from you, and obviously have this uh, lovely opportunity to have this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, that's great. I think you're going to bring an interesting perspective because many of our listeners are also entrepreneurs. So to hear how entrepreneurship and, and the life of personal growth and meditation kind of go together, that would be quite interesting. Can you begin talking a little bit about your background? From both a life and a career perspective, it seems with the benefit of 2020 hindsight that I've always been a seeker. But you know, in the, my early stages of my career, I ended up getting uh, started early in technology uh, back in the early days of Windows and Windows 95, Microsoft and the whole clone game. And then it got into networking and then I started to get some successes in lots of different organizations. But for some reason, I couldn't really find a lot of happiness. I would achieve those things, those milestones that everyone tells you you should achieve to achieve those happinesses, like a big house, sports car, and your family car, and this kind of stuff. But it got to a point where I would check myself and say, well, I'm still not happy. And, you know, what is the meaning behind all this? So, you know, after a, a time where I had actually sold down all my assets and restarted again with a young family about 15 years ago, I, I thought I'd, I'd try to take a different approach. Uh, trying to find some happiness in my career because I had a lot of joy and a lot of successes in other parts of my life. And then I found a life coach. You know, I pretty much committed. So that was that was interesting because it got me to a space where I started to realize that my unhappiness was all my, my own doing and the way that I would perceive things. Then by about 2007, I uh, had enough of being an employee. got a little bit inspired by a number of people like Gary Vaynerchuk and, and other people who talk about entrepreneurship. I guess it's it's a natural evolution as you start to believe in yourself, as you start to see how you are, you can be the creator and the destroyer. Entrepreneurship is the ultimate state of self-expression, mm -hmm. the ultimate state where everything begins and dies with you. It's an interesting space to be able to discover yourself, become enlightened, experiment. You really need your meditation practice, your Socratic practice in a social environment. You know, we had a lot of success with that company. It was called Veltio. It means improvement in ancient Greek. So we built an improvement practice that was a combination of a technical and a management consultancy um, in a, with a partnership with, with uh, some of the largest vendors around cloud computing and mobile, like Salesforce.com and Apple. We, uh, number one passion was growth, personal, professional, to transcend other aspects, other levels of Maslow's hierarchy. You can't delineate the two. If you really want to have entrepreneurial success or any kind of personal success, professional success, you really need to be mindful because it's only through mindfulness that you'll be able to understand what's working for you and what's not. If you don't know what your thesis is and what success criteria looks like, 
you're never going to learn what worked and what didn't work. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same in business as it is in, in the self. To fast forward, we then had two or three uh, players at the table from the US who wanted to acquire us. It was a good time to actually do an exit. I needed a lot of therapy because I loved what I built, truly, and I loved every employee. Fundamentally, the main reason why I started my own business and took that kind of risk and that plunge with a couple of co-founders, uh, where I was tested in my creativity, tested in terms of my mastery, and you know, it was something that was in pursuit of something bigger than just success in terms of purpose or a noble cause or, or significance that um, we would all be catalyzed by this, we would all be engaged by this, and uh, we would go to market with a philosophy and an approach that um, outcompeted the competition because we were outbehaving the competition. Some of the challenges were employees, and I typically noticed the ones who had at least two or three jobs or more uh, previous to us, uh, they had some old habit that we needed to be aware of. So how much do you coach someone? How much do you take them on the journey and realize that they were actually being schooled, inverted commas, mm -hmm. um, in believing that they needed to adhere to a 20th century model of command and control, not connect and collaborate, which is what we were trying to build. Hmm. Now, switching gears a little bit, you went to an experience with the work of Byron Katie? It's been about two years now that the exit has been completed. Um, I took a little bit of time. I thought I was going to be retired for a while, but then I publicly announced this on Facebook. If I'm not creating, I'm dying. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so then I got inspired by a trip that I did with uh, my mentor, John King, who wrote the book Trouble Leadership um, in the west coast of the USA for 10 days and introduced me to a group called One Million Acts of Innovation. I got to meet these people got inspired, came to Australia and set up the Australian chapter and became CEO, set up a board and we started to distill some of the things that we had learned from Canada where Million Acts of Innovation was run and also try and bring to Australia some of the things we learned in, in Veltia which we, we call innovation culture. During that journey, which was uh, about six months ago now actually, I like last year was quite transformative for me personally. I went a little bit deeper in my own practice and with my coach and some old traumas were coming up I have to say and because as you go deeper the onion gets stinkier. You know I got to a point I think this is a really key point that I'd like for yourself and your listeners to, to pick up is that you know once you take the red pill there's no going back. <laughs> it gets to a point where this is gravity that's pulling you through it's not it's not that hard really because you once you get glimpses of your greatness once you get glimpses of what it's like to be in love with yourself, even though that 95% of your day may be traumatic, may be full of lots of confusion and lots of pain, that 5% is so nourishing, so tasty, so memorable, so attractive that it pulls you through. And I like to think that now, 12, 18 month journey, you know, it's, it's probably the other way around that if I have pain, it's more maybe 5 or 10%. But I had a, a really big shift, believe it or not, my co-founder in Veltio, Frank Culey, who uh, helped me shift some energy that was, that was just prohibiting me to being open. Because I think it's really important to understand that there was an environmental setup that allowed my experience at the retreat with Byron Katie to be so, so massive. Mm -hmm. And so Frank had gone to the Amazon. He had taken part in the ayahuasca practices with a, a shaman. And we, we're both, if you like, I like to 
use this analogy, we're trying to you know, climb the same mountain but taking different routes. And he's a chi master and has been a successful martial artist uh, in the past and uses chi now to do a lot of transformation and runs uh, an amazing practice called Flow Engine. For pretty much most of my life, in the morning, every morning, a pit of anxiety in my stomach to the point where it, when it was really bad, I would literally rock myself in, in bed just to feel some level of, you know, uh, relief. But, you know, look, you, you power through and you use maybe guided meditation and maybe you read something. And But it's all, up until that point, it was all, it felt like it was all a band-aid. And I was with Frank um, at lunch and he noticed that there was something wrong with me and asked me, are you okay? And I said no. And he, he's never heard me say no to that question. Mm -hmm. So he said, dude, what's the worst that can happen? And I said, I've tried everything. I just, uh, you know, I've got to tell you, you know, I had some really negative thoughts at that time. But he said to me, just let it take you over. What's the worst that can happen? I'm here. You'll be fine. And if it wasn't for Frank being there, and I guess it's what the importance of having true friendship and people who are um, on the mission, uh, I wouldn't have surrendered. Uh, in a nutshell, this thing pretty much possessed me. I don't know what it was. I would go into anger and despair and then start crying within every 15-second revolution. And um, he had to basically take me from the hand, take me to a, a private place, which is, believe it or not, a car park. I was about to pass out. He taught me this breathing technique that Ayahuasca had taught him, which is like a cheetah, cheetah breath. And then before you know it, noticed that there was some energy coming up from my stomach. He ended up pulling like a, from like a Reiki type approach, this thing out of, my, out of myself, and I ended up vomiting violently. And he was really excited because I think for, for a moment there, we forgot where we were and he remembered that it's exactly what happened when he was in the Amazon. And that there was some kind of transference. This vomiting was quite violent and he was jumping up and down with joy saying, just let it out, let it out. And I remember looking on the ground and even though we had just eaten, there was no food. There was no di undigested food, there was just bile. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, how do you feel? And I said, surrender and then it took me three days to recover from that which was quite transformational because i was very wobbly but since then i have to tell you giovanni i don't wake up with any anxiety wow anything i'm still digesting that because that happened about eight nine months ago now subsequently that gave me the space to think clearly not be reactive not be taken by something else and other people's agendas or, or the things that are in my mind about other people's agendas. I had the benefit of being able to go to Byron Katie's retreat. It's called The Work. It's nine days in Ojai, California, uh, with about 300 people. She's just an amazing teacher. She's the most clean human being I've ever met in terms of energy, in terms of how unattached, mm -hmm. untriggered. You know, Byron Katie has had an amazing journey herself. Um, she had a, a big shift of her own when she was 43. Um, she's been doing this now for, I think, 26 years. She's 72. I've, I've never met her, but I've always heard good things about her. Mm. She has a very simple process, simple but not easy. <laughs> there are distinctions. <laughs> and it's really four questions. All of her resources are available online for free. And, you know, this is the interesting part, Giovanni. I've known of Byron Katie and the work process for at least seven or eight years. And I do listen to her podcasts. Mm -hmm. And 
she was and her podcast which was maybe running for 20 minutes or 30 minutes of people going through her process uh, was something was one of the band-aids that I would use whenever I was in lots of pain and lots of confusion but I had never sat down and written out one of her she calls it a judge your neighbor worksheet I had never written it down taken the time and given myself the luxury of one hour Mm -hmm. to actually go through the process. Now, maybe that was also, it is what it is, and that's part of the journey, because when I actually did arrive, and it was nine days full of the work facilitation, uh, across different dimensions, like me versus the world, me versus women, me versus mom and dad and work and people I've, I've had problems with in the past. So uh, what, what do you mean, me versus? How does it work? Okay, so let me run through it. It's really simple. There are four questions. The first question is, is it true? So if I was to run through a process here, let's just say, uh, as an example, maybe my stressful thought is that mum doesn't love me. Mm -hmm. Okay, mum doesn't love me. Is it true? Yes. Second question, can you be absolutely certain that it's true? In other words, could you get a third party auditor to say that it's true? And you may say, no. Okay, so there's a possibility that it may, may not be true. Okay, the third question, mum doesn't love you. Uh, what happens? How do you react when you believe that thought? I learned from an, a number of amazing attendees there who had been a number of times before at the nuances of the application of the response of this. Because what you do is you have to stay in the moment that you at first thought that mum doesn't love you. When maybe you were five years old and there was something that you experienced where she favored your brother or your sister mm -hmm. or you, you were ridiculed publicly, whatever it might be, put yourself in that position, stay in that dirt, as Katie calls it. Mm -hmm and respond from there. And you may close your eyes and take at least, you know, you could take you 20 minutes to become empty of the things that, to, to answer that question. So basically uh, you go back to that moment in time and, and try to feel yeah. and to remember how it was? Yeah, and you may say, you know, I'm angry. I, I feel powerless. I don't love her. I shut her down. I realize that, you know, she's not good for me. She should be better than that. And, you know, you stay in the, in the dirt. But as you become more and more empty and you go deeper and deeper and deeper because the first few answers are typically your ego or your identity just saying, yes, mm -hmm. I'm answering the question. So looking for possibilities and writing them down and just getting out there. And the last question is, who would you be without that thought? If you couldn't think the thought that mum doesn't love me, who would you be? You start to have a little bit of relief and you start talking about, well, I probably would be a little bit more open to my mother. I wouldn't be dependent upon her for my self-worth or value. I would be free to be able to ask her out to lunch and just listen to her for who she is. I'd be a little bit more, um, I'd be more in my own business, not, not worrying about what she's up to and waiting for conditions to be happy and be improved. Mm -hmm. So the first two questions allow you to really think about the truth of your opinion, of your impression, and to really see, is it true, right? Yeah. The third question allows you to see what that feeling, what that thought does to you, yeah. basically. And the fourth question is, who would you be without that thought or feeling? Yes, exactly. So at the end of this process, you have a lot of uh, self-knowledge about what that thing is. How do you move from there? So this is important for you to start to get a little bit of a glimpse of how your thoughts and your beliefs about your thoughts can trigger you. You believe that your thoughts are your sense of reality. Mm -hmm. Now, the magic happens when you do the turnaround. So it's four questions and turnarounds. The turnarounds are where you turn around the, the statement to the self, to the other, or to the opposite, as a minimum. You could actually go further than that. So to turn that around and, and to extend this example, mum doesn't love me, turn it around, Mum does love me. The way you facilitate this is by saying, well, can you give me two or three examples of where this statement may be true or truer 
in the original statement and be creative with that. Mum does love me. Well, she was always there for me on my birthdays. Okay, that was the one time that she scolded me and, you know, I've formed the whole, like, <laughs> the rest of my opinion for the rest of my life has been formed by that one thing. She did all these nice things and those other nice things when I was sick, when she picked me up, when I got in trouble, when she could have probably been a little bit harsher on me or not. But, yeah, I can see where mum loves me more than she doesn't love me. Very good. And then you turn it around to another one and the other statement might be that, I don't love mum. Give me two or three examples of where that, that might be true. And in that situation, you start to get compassion because you may not have been good to your mother. You may not love your mother in multiple different acts that you've done and the way you behave, the way you shut her down and the way you be prejudge and pre-assume. Mm-hmm. And then because you're in that state and that may be true, as true, you can have compassion for your mother not loving you. Mm-hmm. And then that energy of you feeling kind of rejected starts transforming you're seeing the other side that you have also rejected your mother and that also there has been instances where you have been loved and you're not taking that into account so it's kind of balancing the energy balancing the one-sided view exactly it's very powerful typically when it's a binary statement like mom doesn't love me then you can it's hard to turn it around to the third when you can't find another obvious turnaround turn it around to your thought and you may say my thoughts about my mother are not loving And then try and find the thoughts about your mother that weren't loving as example and realize that that, that's not necessarily reality. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity for you to get to see a different point of view and how that other point of view could be more truer. I like that very much because many people start meditation with with the view of personal transformation, of uh, overcoming stress and anxiety. And it's very important, but meditation itself is not enough. If you're still holding on to certain points of view or to certain decisions that you have made of seeing things in one way instead of another way, then that decision, that point of view is going to continuously bring and suffering for you. So meditation can help you actually be aware of that and process these feelings better, but you need to see through them so you can actually be free of them. And then your meditation can also go deeper. Absolutely. My personal experience is that if you can't detach from the energy associated with the thought that you're believing in. And there are some thoughts that our identity or our ego just does not want to give up. Yes. And if you haven't done that processing, in my experience, it doesn't matter how much meditation I do, it's just going to be a band-aid. Yeah. Meditation then becomes just a relaxation technique, which is yeah. good for your health, but needs more yeah. to transform. Yeah. In my experience, and by the seventh and eighth and ninth day at the retreat, I honestly had visceral experience of what it feels like to be in the now, fully supported by the universe, in love, loved up, uh, synchronous with everything that I felt just happened. You know, by the last day, I remember climbing trees like a child, hugging, you know, anyone that was in front of me and they were reciprocating. And I said to someone, this is the best day of my life. Hmm. And I feel joy. And now you have to understand, I've never said that in my life. That's amazing. Yeah. I see this type of thing happening when people go through these types of transformation. Also, I spend a lot of time in satsang with Muji and he uses a kind of self-inquiry and some other questions to allow you to go to a deeper state. And I see similar things happening where people have things happening in their body, like sometimes tremor or or even they get sick or something because that emotional energy has a, a correspondence in your body and it needs to leave. And then after that, they are laughing or they are kind of immersed in in joy and and peace for a while. And it's just, it's amazing. It's a release. It totally is. 
when you get to a stage in your life where you've actually had a, a visceral experience, not a thought, you know, your, your own visceral, like your body feels mm -hmm. it, where you say, A, the universe is friendly and I can prove it. Mm -hmm. B, I am the beginning and the end. I am totally responsible for my joy and happiness. C, you know, whose business am I working on? Am I working on my business, your business, or God's business? And Katie keeps everything very, very to the ground. She only cares about one thing, ending suffering. You know, she says, when you argue with reality, you only lose 100% of the time. <laughs> yeah, and that's a very deep realization. It's almost like you're in the matrix. And once you can understand the laws of physics in the matrix, if, as an example, just like Neo, you know how he can bend reality and he can, mm -hmm. well, it's the same thing. Because when you start to see, when I have pain, I must be arguing with reality. For mm -hmm. me, that is such a hack. That is such a growth hack. And then the other thing was, because when I came back, for about six weeks at least, I was definitely floating. You know, I was in a very zen state. And I could still get back there. You know, all it, all it takes is to do the work and get clean again. And I can, I can actually feel the shift. Yeah. So did you need to do the work again on the same thoughts and feelings that they would come back again? Or was it new stuff that were coming up? New stuff. You need to continue to unpeel the onion. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I got to say, you know, when, when something old comes back up and you, all you've got to do is look at your worksheet, look at it and it bang straight away it reminds you because mm. we can't forget. There were two key distinctions that I picked up was um, when I engage with people in order for them not to trigger me, I ask the question, if I believe what they believe right now, how would I react, act and treat myself? So if I believe what they believe right now, I'll do the same thing. Yes. And, and, you know, typically I get caught up in other people's businesses because I can't understand why they would do something, you know, because I have too many expectations and it's just a big setup for failure. So as a result, you end up having a lot more freedom, more joy and more time to spend on your own work. That's a very interesting framework. I just got reminded that the first two steps or the first two uh, rungs of the Buddhist path, right view and right thinking. Yeah. So I think the work of Baron Katie helps you to have a right view about your own things and, yeah. and to think more correctly, more equanimously, more unbiased about the events in your life and about other people's reactions and things like this. And yeah. this sets up the soil for a better meditation, for yeah. just for a better life in general. Exactly. I love facilitating people. This year I got involved with a startup incubator and I've actually been bringing some of this to play as the key mentor. And it's quite amazing how transformative it is. We've been able to fast track the development of young entrepreneurs mm. as a result. Now, how do you take, not control, but live a life on purpose and be conscious around the decisions you make mm -hmm. um, that then creates your future, creates your life? Do you feel that by going through this process of Baron KT, yeah. that new possibilities for your life open or that you had a clearer vision about your purpose, about what you want to do? Both you're more courageous, you're more open, you'll go to a place or places and meet people that you typically wouldn't because you would have prejudged them previously. Mm -hmm. There is no fear. So to answer your question directly, yes, it changes, it changes you. One day mm -hmm. we had driven to Santa Monica, 300 people on four or five buses, and there was something, a challenge we needed to do individually, all spread out. I felt a little bit of anxiety about doing it, 
So I sat down and caught the statement that was causing me stress around what I was about to do in terms of going out and, and engaging with a, a group of people. I went through the work and cleared it. I then tested the statement on myself again. There was nothing there. I wasn't being triggered. Mm. And I approached them with a whole new lens. And, you know, I engaged. My needs were met. And, and I got to meet you some new people. Otherwise, I would have said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. That kind of decision making happens so quickly. You haven't even made the damn choice. It's just automatic based on your conditioning, basically. Exactly. She has a lot of uh, videos on YouTube and all that. And uh, I highly recommend it. But again, there was a marked difference between watching and reading and she's got a couple of audiobooks as well which are fantastic it's funny when i listen to those audiobooks now when i go on a long drive i, I hear and see something totally different yeah, yeah i think it's important to have the the facilitator there or, or somebody that will support you as yeah. you're going through this process because we might not have the the maturity or the, the impartiality of mind to say no this is actually just my mind trying to cover up the situation or no this is actually the, the real thing yeah absolutely do you practice meditation? Yeah, it's interesting. Since the retreat, my meditation has taken a radical change. Katie facilitates about a half an hour meditation in the mornings. It starts off very simply. As soon as I wake up, I say the word notice for about 10 minutes. And I say it very slowly or with different tonality. And as I say notice, as soon as I say the word, it's almost like I'm taking a snapshot of what I'm noticing. Then categorize it. Is, it, is this in the past, is this in the future, mm -hmm. or is this now? And if it's in the past or future, I notice it, uh, maybe see the detail, and then say thank you, but this is not serving me right now, and allow it to disappear. Even just doing that has made a massive difference in my life. But then you can graduate from notice for the first 10 minutes to then the next 10 minutes, the word is breathe, mm -hmm. breathed, breathing and you, you know, extrapolate all the different variations of the word breath. Mm -hmm. When you get really, really still, you start to realize that you don't breathe. You're being breathed mm -hmm. yeah. because you can't hold your breath and die. Yeah. You can't. I think there's a lot of depth in that. I'm still working on realizing that. It definitely serves me. And then the final 10 minutes, when you graduate, you get to the word supported and you realize or you replay maybe the previous day's experience and happenings or what you're, where you're at at the moment right now, how you're being supported by your bed, supported by oxygen, supported by the environment, mm -hmm. supported by the building, supported by your friends, family, colleagues, you know, everything that you feared yesterday morning about or, or the things that you were concerned about experiencing or performance, anxiety or whatever it might be, how... You got through them effortlessly mm -hmm. and how we forget how much we're supported. We really don't know. And that was the final thing that I wanted to say is that we just need to remember who we are and remember how we're supported and remember that we are the masters of our domain. And when you get to that stage, anything is possible. So that's how I meditate now. For me at the moment, it works really well. When I feel my body being charged by, triggered by something, I ask the question, whose business is it? Is this bothering me because it's someone else's business or is it something that's out of my, out of my control? Write that statement down. And she's got an app as well, by the way, so you can do it while you're mobile. Okay. <laughs> okay. And run through the process. Uh, I find once you get really good, and this may be a trap, be aware. Once you get really good, all you've got to say is, is there something wrong, that person doesn't like me. And then just ask the question, is it true? 
and all of a sudden it happens mm. automatically. It mm. takes you there and you start, it just reminds you that, hold on, it's your perception. So if it's your business, yeah. then what do you do? You just, you work through those four questions? The best thing to do is to download her worksheet. The worksheet allows you to write the question down in six different ways mm -hmm. so that you can attack it from multiple angles. Should, could, need. Uh, so she should love me. She could have done more, you know, that kind of stuff. You do the worksheet and then you get clear of it. And what if you realize, no, this is actually not none of my business. It's somebody else's. What do you do then? Because I had a bit of a shift on the second day where I went, well, how do I, hold on, isn't that being greedy and being selfish if I'm not concerned about other people mm -hmm. and you know, saying that's their business and just walking away? Um, but I realized that if, unless you're clean, unless you're joyful, unless you're, you know, done your work, you really can't be there for someone else. You can't be the joyous person that everyone aspires to be. You can't be the person who doesn't get triggered and is very clear about a response. But if you still have a challenge with that, then go deeper. It's something that's bothering your identity and your ego. And whether you like it or not, it will affect the way you behave and react to those people. Mm -hmm. Even though you may have said it's their business. She's got two books. One of them is I Need Your Love, Is It True? That is an amazing aha book. Mm -hmm. She spends a whole day at the retreat about how we seek love all the time. We seek attention. Things we do to go out of our way to get that in small ways and massive ways. Yeah. And how that is just insanity. I think we, we all are because it's uh, our natural tendency as a human being is to seek love and to seek happiness, both of these things outside of ourselves. It's a drug. She does a really good little story. She says, when we grow up and we're little and we're so happy playing with a grain of salt, with the most mundane thing, we just mm -hmm. think it's so amazing for hours. And then someone says, oh, you're playing with a grain of salt. And you go, oh, actually felt nice. I've got attention. Hmm. And they tapped me on the back. And then maybe even they gave me a lollipop. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is actually a graduation. This is better than just playing with the grain of salt because I'm getting a kick of, a, of dopamine, you know, mm -hmm. and, and various other things. And maybe, you know, then that graduates to the play area and all these kids are doing funny tricks and doing handstands and doing risky things on the monkey bars and getting all this attention. And then when you don't get it anymore, you, you do other things beyond the call of duty, beyond what is sane to the point where you live to get attention. Mm -hmm. Because it happens to us and we learn it at a very young age, we hardly ever question it until it gets, you know, really, really bad. That's why I believe you need to have your own visceral experience to really know and feel that I don't need anyone else's attention. Mm -hmm. That's what I needed to realize how dysfunctional it is to believe that if I get your love, I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Now you can arrive at that point of saying, I, I don't need anybody's attention. I don't need anybody's love to be able to exist and, and to be happy and to be worthy. In your case, did you arrive at that point because you found something inside yourself that was giving you these things that you were seeking outside? Absolutely. I remember finishing up, going back into the artificial world, <laughs> being at the airport. I was so present that I realized that I had a, a bit of a challenge in maintaining eye contact with people at the counter when I was catching my plane back. And so I did a bit of a clean. I did the work and maintained eye contact. And then I had like a group of people around me and people were all talking and it was, it was amazing. And I had about an eight hour layover before I had to come to Sydney. It was the easiest eight hours of my life. I had amazing people around me and we, you know, talked about the experience at the retreat and uh, we all left at the gate and, you know, I got some massive hugs because I was used to getting lots of hugs for nine <laughs> days. 
And then I was on a plane, that was a 15-hour flight, and that was the easiest 15-hour flight I've ever experienced. I didn't have any urge to watch TV or watch, you know, something on, on the screen. I literally would listen to some music that I had listened to in the previous, prior to the trip, and all the music sounded different, meant different things in terms of the lyrics. I easily meditated for five or six hours in a noisy plane. And whenever something bothered me, or like a noisy person, or a noisy child, or something weird, I would say, okay, what's that about? and do the work on it. I know what my life purpose is, is to clean myself and do the work, clean myself of all the things that I'm attached to. And, you know, there was a stage on that flight, on that flight where I was just, you know, crying because I had these realizations and tears of joy. And this lady next to me tapped me. She said, are you okay? You know, it sounds, you look like you're, you're going through some hardship. You know, would you like to talk about it? And I looked at her with slowly, you know, really knowing and present not seeking attention approach mm -hmm. i looked at her with and i smiled and i said no i'm fine and um you know and she looked at me and was amazed and and i said i'm just waking up and then that led to another five-hour conversation <laughs> beautiful <laughs> so yeah you know we had a beautiful exchange and it was a great conversation and you could say that i got my attention needs met if i had any at that stage and I became present to how words dilute experience. Yes, they yeah. add value, but they also dilute. And people would ask me, how was the retreat? I want to know about the retreat. I would sit there and just wait for the right response come up. And I couldn't because my traditional response would be transformative, life-changing, paradigm yeah. shifting. I, they all seem small compared I, to the real experience. Ah, totally, yeah. totally. When I say those words, am I serving myself from an ego perspective, you know? So in my trouble to try and communicate, I would, this expression on my face with my hands open and saying, I can't, I, I, I you know, and people would say, oh my God, that good. <laughs> and I would go, they get exactly, it <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. So if you're not clear, you can't see how that is actually getting your needs met. You're communicating, you're engaging, you know, we fall into this habit of thinking about what we've been doing is exactly how it should be done. So it really drives this concept of innovation and innovation culture because you, you see things differently. Mm -hmm. You can't really be innovative unless you do that. Nice. The moment you cut off your chains, then you can think freely. Yeah. If you could go back in time, maybe 10 years, and meet the old version of Khan, what would the current Khan say to the past one? Go to the retreat. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But look, you know, outside of that, I would say, you know, seek stillness and trust yourself more often. Uh, I think a lot of sabotages happen because we're innocently brought up in cultures of fear, anger, guilt, shame. And those are all disempowering and all because you're not enough. I know something, but I don't trust it. So I, well, I think I just had a revelation just then. Thanks, Giovanni. Thank you for creating the space. But yeah, stillness and trust in self first is the most important thing. I, that's what I would say 10 years ago. But I also, you know, there's no regrets. It's all part of the journey. I also find that the biggest hardship in life is where the biggest breakthroughs happen. The biggest failures are where the biggest successes lie. As per this book that I just recently read, the obstacle is the way. That's the best way to finish this episode. Thank you very much. So that was our interview with Con Giorgio. You can find the show notes for this episode with all the links, names, and resources mentioned at livingthere.com slash episode 8. If this was your first time listening, thank you for coming. We bring a great variety of guests from all walks of life and practitioners of different meditation techniques. 
so be sure to stick around. Please subscribe via your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. And if you had learned something valuable today, it would mean a lot to me if you leave a comment to this show on the iTunes or on the blog. You can follow me on Twitter at geo underscore self. We ended with a quote, this one from Tishnyat Ham. Meditation is offering your genuine presence to yourself in every moment.